They say poker is a hard way to make an easy living. This is the podcast about people that make poker work for them. This is Mid-Stakes Living. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mid-Stakes Living, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com. Back for another episode, and we are very excited today to, uh, to have on as a guest somebody who I actually had a few requests to get him on, so I was happy we were able to do so. Uh, you know him online, perhaps, as Battler33. His name is Mike Kahan, won a World Series of Poker Bracelet this summer. How you doing, sir? Doing all right. Glad to be here. Awesome, awesome. So, uh... Thank you for taking a little bit of time out of your out of your schedule. I know you're a, a busy man. You got a got a baby and everything now, so probably not easy to find time to just talk <laughs> poker for an hour. No, not not too much time these days. But well, let's um, let's jump right into it. I mean, I guess a good place to start is just to kind of talk about your background a little bit, how you got into poker, and kind of how you became a professional poker player. Ah, jeez, started uh, maybe ten years ago or so. Uh, my brother started playing online poker, just some like low stakes sit and goes on poker room and such, and uh, I just I. I realized that it wasn't a luck game, it was a skill game, and uh, I just loved doing it, so it was a great fit for me. Nice, very cool. So did you kind of do the whole, like, um, you know, started out playing, like, five, ten games with your friends? That's kind of the story we always hear, or did <laughs> yeah. you jump right into online yeah, poker? Yeah, like $10 buy-in cash games uh, back in uh, my college town of Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, we just had, like, five guys that would uh, just buy in for, like, 10 or 20 bucks, and that's kind of how, how it all started. Yeah, which probably felt like nosebleed stakes at that time. Yeah, right? <laughs> Seriously. I know if I was in college losing $20, I would have been gutted. Yeah, yeah, right? It does. always does. It's the same way with me. I started in like five-pound home games, and uh, yeah, it's kind of the same way. You feel like you lose three buy-ins in a night that time. You're like, oh, man, I lost so much money tonight. And then <laughs> fast forward five years, and you're like, oh, wow, that really wasn't that much money. Now, now I, uh, I'm playing for a bit bigger. <laughs> always the way it goes. So um, you, know, you mentioned, obviously – you discovered it was a skill game and you started playing on poker room and stuff. How, and, and I saw an interview with you actually recently on poker news where you talked about you spend most of your time playing online. Um, so wh- what do you see as the differences between live and online and why do you spend most of your time playing online poker? Uh, I mean, everything is volume. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's such a long run game where even playing live, the, the first two events I played this summer, it's like I got it in great both times and lost. And it's like, wow, there goes a whole day of playing where online I could probably get, you know, three times the action, you know, spread out over 20 games. So if you take a beat or two, you can still still manage to, to make a run in a few. And it's a lot more consistent, I'd say, money coming in than, than playing yeah. live. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And I, and I suppose, too, it makes it a little bit better for you. I mean, you... As I mentioned earlier, recently had a baby. Uh, you're married, so you get, you know you got the family thing going on too. So I assume it makes it easier for you in terms of being able to grind online versus traveling to play live. Definitely, and you can uh, you can be comfortable in your own house, and uh, if you want to have a couple beers or if you want to do whatever, you don't have to worry about all the things that are correlated with that. And uh, yeah, it's just a lot more comfortable. You can be in be in the right mindset, and uh, yeah, I can be close to my family, and uh, yeah, it's great. And tra- cool. travel expenses just take so much away from the profitability of live poker as well, don't they? Like you spend so much on hotels and travel and everything that by the time you you actually get to play the tournaments, you have to have like an insane ROI just to justify it, really. Right. And yeah, very true. Yeah, and, and also like I was saying, just like the the multiple the multiple games. I mean, it's just it just seems so crazy just to me playing live poker. It's just it, it's a lot more fun. I enjoy it, but it's just ah, I don't know. In terms <laughs> of like m- making 
making money consistently, there's only probably, I don't know how many people do it, but just doesn't make as much sense. Right. And, and how have you found it? I mean, you're a relatively new father, right? So how, how have you found it sort of shifting your priorities and, and still finding time to grind while obviously raising a child and, and keeping a marriage going? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, it's added stress most definitely. But at the same time, you know, you, you play in a session. If you lose, you know, you can go home and see your son and just like everything is, everything is fine. It's like it's so easy to get away from poker then too when, when you want to and you don't have to kind of hang on to the, the downswings, which are inevitable really. And it's just, yeah, it's just great to be able to get away and just, just to be with him and be with my wife as well. Yeah. Yeah. I know, uh, I told somebody the other day, I can't remember who I was talking to, but I told him it takes a very special woman to support a, uh, a professional poker player, <laughs> not support them, not necessarily support them financially, but <laughs> support them mentally yeah, right? and emotionally. I guess. <laughs> no, that's definitely the truth. It's, uh, Although sometimes financially too. <laughs> yeah, well, and she she hasn't complained too many times because she hasn't worked since like a month into our relationship. So it's uh, <laughs> she. Uh, that's a pretty good deal. It's, it's hard to it's hard to complain with that, but yeah, the mental side of it, you know, in poker you always have to question every situation and just like it, it makes relationships tough too, you know, because you're always, you know, you always have to be thinking about questioning, you know, thinking about, you know, I guess your optimal move in life at the same time. Yeah. You start wondering if your wife's leveling. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Basically. Nice. Give me a few years. Your kid will be leveling you too. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. She, she re-raises me all the time and I just, I just let it go. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. The plus EV move against your wife is always to fall. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) For sure. Unless you want something Um, and then it's to call and then. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, so obviously we got to talk a little bit about uh, the summer in in Vegas. You and I actually played together. I guess it was two years ago in Vegas um, in like a five one of those five hundred dollars five hundred dollar side events they had. I can't remember what they it's called like it. Carnival the carnival. Yeah, fun series, and, and we got to play together a little bit. And I remember being pretty excited because you used to destroy my soul online. So I was kind of like, oh, I get to play with the, the legend live. <laughs> um, and then you know, flash forward to this past World Series and. Uh, we had the good fortune of being just down the road from the Rio when you made your uh, your final table there at the WSOP. So we, all, you know, the TP House guys ran down to uh, to rail, and that was a pretty exciting moment. Talk a little bit about how that tournament went for you and how the final table was. Ah, oh, jeez, uh, the tournament as a whole, it was it, it went by. Uh, it was it was pretty standard. I, I don't feel like I made too many mistakes. I played one hand really terribly early, but uh, God. It was just, I mean, I feel like the final table, I felt like I got extremely fortunate, to be honest. I, I woke up with aces a few times when guys had just shoved it all in, and <clears throat> that's that's really how poker is, is. You need to put yourself in good positions, so when you get those those situations, you end up winning. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't really, uh, it was definitely it was definitely a blast. I felt like I had a ton of support, but I don't. It, the the tournament was played. It seemed like we were so short stacked at the final table that there weren't really a lot of moves to be made, and so that kind of mm-hmm. like narrowed uh, narrowed the way that you play. Yeah, I guess that's kind of the nature of those one Ks, right? You're going to come in a little shorter generally, right? I suppose. Um, but I, I mainly use I, I use M for uh, for all my shipping ratios, and that's that's probably the only part of my game that I would say is is above average is my short stack game, and that's. I just I use M for everything and yeah. 
Yeah. Where does this kind of? I know I, you know you talk to some people and they say, oh, you know, I don't care about bracelets. I just want to win money. Other guys say, I don't care about the money. I just want to win a bracelet. Where does the? Well, you want a lot of money and a bracelet. So where do the? But but where do they kind of stand on your priority list in terms of accomplishments in poker? Well, the bracelet, no one can ever take that away from me, or I can never really lose it. I guess I could, but mentally I could not. So that was that's pretty special that that's. Uh, that it that it happened. The money is obviously great, um, but yeah, I mean, I just I'm lucky to be able to spend so much time with my family and just like I love playing poker, so it's it's a great job. And uh, yeah, just just as being as big of a nerd as I can be and just trying to analyze it and just just being as good as I can be is is great. It really is an art form as much as uh, as as gambling could be considered to be, I guess. So yeah. I kind of like that description, uh, calling it an art form. It gives it a little more credence than what most people do. Right. Um, so I assume one of the things that makes this exciting in terms of winning a bracelet is the fact that eventually you get to sort of pass that on to your son, right? Like, does, you think it's more special now <laughs> than it would have been three years ago for that very reason? Absolutely. It was absolutely, yeah, it was just, it would have been great for him to have, to have been there for the ceremony, but, you know, they uh, they have their policies, and I guess that's just how it is. But uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get him going at a young age, playing some cards, and uh, yeah, it should be should be fun. I actually saw that in your interview with Poker News that um, they wouldn't let him in the room for the uh, for the ceremony. I'm a little bit surprised. I mean, I I, I guess I understand that it's like 18 plus, but it's not like he's 17, right? <laughs> and he's gonna sneak into the roulette you know, wheel or anything to try to try to win some money. Yeah. I, was, I was pretty shocked. <laughs> I think they could have made an exception, at least for the bracelet. I mean, the, the tournaments haven't even started when they do the bracelet ceremony, so it would have been easy just to have them roll in and then just roll out. Yeah, right. Get the escort or something. But yeah, it's. My wife was saying they're like, oh, what are they doing in a different room? And then I was like, well, nobody would ever, nobody would show up really, except for like maybe ten people. So <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> unless you have just a huge fan base, but it's yeah, not really have, that, so. you can't play to actually go somewhere other than a poker room. Like you basically. You're not you're not going to stand much chance of getting poker players to do anything above and beyond like the necessary. So, <laughs> right? <laughs> so true. Um, so we have to we have to talk a little bit about uh, your online game. I mentioned earlier that you you tended you had a tendency to give me fits at the table, and that's kind of one of the things a lot of people say about you. And when you when you ask people, oh, who's the you know the best reg or who's the reg that gives you the most problem, your name comes up, and I'm sure you are aware of that. Um, and I think it's because, at least from my perception, you have a very sort of unconventional style. Do you see your style as unconventional, or is it just the way you play? It's, I'd say it's more so the way I play. Basically, I'd say that the best advice that I could give to anyone would be that you always have to just adjust. Like I, I call it adjusting to one step ahead, and it's just basically you know try to understand what the other person is thinking and and use that against them. You know do. Do what they don't want to do, and you know if if you feel like they're weak, if if someone three bets a pot and a, and a, the flop comes with an ace, and you call with you know a mid mid pocket pair, that sometimes you just need to just check check bomb it all the way. To if you really don't think they either have ace king or nothing, you know if 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 you've been tight enough, I mean it's it's all playing back at your image is is how I would explain it. Like if somebody thinks I'm loose then I'm not going to be loose against them. And if somebody doesn't know that I'm loose, then I'm going to just lean as much as I can. And so it's just really just adjusting to, to every situation the, 
the best you can, you know, and then understanding where the other person sits and it's all the readjustments and readjustments and levels and levels and just really just getting, getting deep with it. And I, I think a key to that too is not, not playing too many games. Uh, I don't use a, a HUD at all and I never have. And, and so I can't really play much more than if I'm deep, like more than like five or six because I can't pay attention to everyone if it's more than that. And it's, uh, I think that that's one of the hardest things about online poker is balancing the amount of games mm-hmm. and not playing too many. And yeah, I don't know if that answered right. it or not, but <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do think that makes sense. How many tables do you normally find yourself playing then when you're playing online? If you're you know looking for the optimal number, what what does that fall on for you? Back, back when I play, back when I played online, I'd say it was like maybe I'd probably fire up like eight to ten at a time. Mm-hmm. in early stages and then if a few of them started to get deep i probably wouldn't make it more than six and then most of my success in the in the biggest ones have been uh when i've been down to one or two tables and i can really just pay attention to, to every every play pay attention to who's being you know aggressive and then you can make plays against that you know and like really aggressive plays it doesn't even matter what cards you have but if somebody's been raising a ton and you know that there's almost no chance to have aces kings or queens or ace king it's like you can make plays to where they, even if they know you're full of shit, they just can't, you know, they just don't really, in my opinion, they don't, they can't play back at it. And it's, it's hard if you're playing, you know, 15 games to, to pick up on that and to not become too loose, I guess. For sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we get a, a lot of, um, we've had a lot of different guys uh, on the podcast who, who have different, you know, different strategies for how many tables they play. And you know, we just, just a couple of weeks ago, we had Tom Hall on here who's very successful, but plays like 20 plus tables. And it's really interesting to talk to guys who have that different perspective. And, you know, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle myself and I used to play a lot of tables and now I've cut down to sort of nine to 12, the vast, vast majority of the time. And, and I think everybody, like it, it sort of takes everybody a while to find that optimal number for them. Cause there's certainly a bunch of guys out there making a ton of money playing lots more tables, but, they just play a lower average buy-in, you know? So it's like you say, it's all about adjustment, not just at the table, but in terms of game selection and other stuff like that as well. Cause you can't, right. you can't play super high stakes and play 20 tables, you know? Right. Do you guys, do you guys use heads up displays? When yeah. You yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I, I do as well. Um, and there's actually been a discussion recently in one of my chat groups about, um, whether or not a HUD is a good thing. And I think the argument comes down to it's good if you, insist on playing a ton of tables right but it maybe is not necessarily well i wouldn't say it's not good if you're playing less tables but it's not as necessary if you're playing less tables. right yeah i mean I, I to be honest i've questioned whether or not those should even be like allowed like i feel like notes should be allowed but i feel like a heads-up display like somebody somebody something giving you information on on someone that you wouldn't really be able to obtain by just playing or you know whatever is I kind of I kind of compare it to the uh, the belly putter in golf. It's almost like I don't really I don't really yeah. agree with it to be honest. Like I, I think that poker as an art form is really about understanding who you're playing against and how you're playing against them, and, and it's all in your mind rather than <clears throat> some stats at a computer. I don't even really know how they work because I've never used one, but <laughs> that's kind of what yeah. I've heard. So I don't know if, how you guys feel about that. Or... I mean, my my perspective as someone who's pretty much always used one is that there are. Like I think using your HUD effectively is a skill in itself, and right. I think there are a lot of a lot of guys who perhaps don't use HUDs or who have maybe not had as much experience in using them kind of think that it automatically makes your game better. Whereas what it actually does is it automatically gives you more information. But there's plenty of guys out there who misuse that information, and so right. 
I do think that like, I can kind of see the argument for HUDs not being allowed, but I feel like the the fact that it allows guys to play so many more tables and generate so much rake for poker sites means that it's basically just never going to happen. And right. so even though I myself, like, I, I certainly, I like the idea of a poker game where nobody's using a HUD and everybody's, like, four tabling or whatever and really concentrating, but I feel like since I would make so much less money if I did things that way, I feel like I'm kind of... <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, that's that's well said. How, how about this though? What if the poker site? What if they? What if they told like, for instance, I don't use a HUD when I, mm-hmm. if I played in the past when I played online. But if it told which players at the table were using HUDs, so then I would at least know who's gathering all this, you know, preconceived information on me, so then I can use that against them. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's an interesting thing. But I, I almost feel like it kind of once you once you play regularly enough, it kind of does that anyway because. Pretty much any anybody that you have more than a certain number of hands on, you can be pretty confident that they're gonna be using a HUD just because so many like anybody who's a reg these days pretty much does like, like 80, <laughs> 80 to ninety percent plus of guys who are regs these days, you can pretty much assume they're gonna be using HUDs. So I just kind of take it from that. I just assume that if I'm playing a hand against a guy who I know is a reg, I I figure he has stats on me. I figure he has a certain perception of my game, and obviously some perceive me differently, but. Um, if, if I see I've got like 1k hands on a guy, I'm just going to go ahead and assume he's using a HUD. Um, just because it's, you know, on the very, very, it can be wrong, but yeah, it's just, it's just so likely that it's one of those things where it's like occasionally, yeah, you know, you don't have complete information, but you have enough to make a decent assumption. So I just proceed from there really. Right. Yeah. I'd put myself somewhere in the middle, I guess, on my opinion on that. I like, I guess if, if tomorrow all the poker sites said, no more HUDs. Nobody can use them. They're banned. Mm-hmm. And they had a way to actually prevent it. I guess I'd probably be okay. I would just be like, okay, well, I don't have one, but neither does he, so I can live with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm kind of from, like, I kind of have the same standpoint as Matt in that if I know that six out of nine guys at the table are using them, then I, I want mine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, 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 consider- um, I'm considering checking one out then. Maybe that's uh, – I just – yeah, yeah. If, to me, I've always just like, if as long as I've continued to have success, it's like if it isn't broke, don't don't fix it, you know. But at the same time, you know. Try- yeah, I think um, the the debate we were having, where you know somebody was saying, well, I just don't use one because I just play less tables, and that way I can focus. And our point to him was, well, you could play less tables and really focus on every player and have the HUD stats. Mm-hmm. So it can really only, you know, even if they just sit there and you only look at them once every thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, in a certain spot or against a certain opponent. Um, I mean, it can only really give you information. You can choose to use that information or not, right. obviously. Yeah. Um, and that's the way I so. perceive it as well. Like, you can get stats from your HUD that you couldn't ever reasonably have from from memory. And, and obviously, that's part of the gray area of, like, should they be allowed at all or not? Exactly. But if, you have, if you have a guy that you have, you've played, like, 5K hands with, then... You know, you might, have, you might have a vague idea about how aggressive he is or not in, in your head but you won't necessarily have a specific percentage on how often he double barrels turns, for example. Um, and, and yet you'll have that with a HUD. So obviously there's, right. a huge, there's a huge, you know, extra bit of information that you get there. And, and, and I think like, you know, like KB says, like I'm not one of the guys who's going to go out and seek out these extra, extra edges. If there's, you know, like, I guess I'm, I just, I guess I'm not just, just not motivated enough like that. I, I'm not like one of those guys who goes out and, and really looks for that tiny, tiny extra edge. Um, for whatever reason but at the same time like if there's something out there that i start to feel like i'm at a disadvantage if i'm not using it i i, I feel like i need to catch up and i need to like be on that level of guys having that amount of information so i don't necessarily see it as a tool for, 
for gaining an edge because I think personally I, I think I'd still do pretty well comparatively if the HUDs were completely disallowed because I think my, mm-hmm. my my skill is is kind of the psychological side more than the math side anyway but like I, I just feel so disadvantaged if I don't use one so um, I guess I'm just used to it now and if I if I stop I'd probably stop making money <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. I, I will say though there is something uh, pretty refreshing about the idea of somebody saying I just want to play people not heads up in terms of one-on-one, but I just want to play somebody at the purest level mm-hmm. you know, uh, without all the, the technological gimmicks. Yeah. It, I guess, it, I guess know, that, it helps me live, though, I guess. That's what, uh, that's what a good friend actually told me. He's like, you don't use a HUD over like these past five years? He's like, you'd, you'd be killing the live game. And I was just <laughs> like, all right. Like, so I went out there and rolled the dice, and <laughs> I guess it worked. Yeah. So. It, and, I mean, there are some great players. I mean, Big Dog Pocket 5 doesn't use a HUD either. And, mm-hmm. I think he's tried before. He's just like, what are all these stupid numbers on my screen? <laughs> I can't pay attention with all these numbers flashing. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about that is I've seen, I've, I've heard a lot of guys who who've started out using HUDs have reactions like that, and they get put off by it. And I think the key is to kind of, if you're going from not using one to, to starting out with one, you have to you have to take it pretty simply and start out like the absolute most basic stats, and not even necessarily have them enabled all the time, just practice using them and practice like picking spots to use them. And then once you get comfortable with that, you add like one more stat and then you add another stat and another one, another one until you build up a HUD that you're really comfortable using all the time. And I think a bon- a part of the reason why a lot of guys try using a HUD and then quit again is because they jump right in they have like eight to 10 stats on there and they just don't know when to use any of them and they don't have like a process for when to check what stat. And, and so that's like, it just confuses them and ends up throwing them off the game. So like personally, I feel like building it up is kind of the best play. To, to sort would, of would you guys say that the most advantageous stat of the HUD is a player that is super tight that, you know, you don't know how tight they are, and they, they raise, and in, in, instead of deciding to three-bet them, you just lay it down? Would you say that's the most important, or would you say it's the other way around, where if somebody's aggressive, that... I think, um, I think it's like, it's hard to say. I Obviously... The, the vast majority of regs these days are going to have stats that fall within a certain region. So there's there's not going to be that much difference in practicality between a guy who plays stats of, like, I don't know if these mean anything to you or not, but a guy who plays stats of, like, 14, 12 versus a guy who plays stats of, like, 16, 14 or 17, 15. Like, it's not going to feel that much different playing against one versus the other. But the the really useful things are being able to identify the regs who come along and they have stats of like 24, 22, because those are the outliers and the guys who you know if they're at your table, they're going to be really aggressive pretty much every time. What, what, is it, what does a 40-30 mean? Uh, most of the time it means he's a fish. Like You don't see guys who have numbers above 30 like in the long term at all. Like There's no regs who have above 30 VPIP in the long run, unless you play somebody like in exclusively six max games and they're, they're really aggro, but... Yeah, I mean, yeah. like the most aggro of the decent regs are probably guys like um, like Fu15 is probably one that comes to mind who has really high hard numbers. Um, mm-hmm. He plays he plays a ton of hands. He three bets a ton. He has like double figure three bets, and he's really tough to play against. But a lot of the guys that you come across who who have those high numbers, either you probably end up having a small sample on them, and so therefore their numbers are going to kind of regress to the mean after a long time, um, or they turn out to be just huge fish who are just like donking around and they have stats of like 67, 41 or something. And you see that, you see, you see those stats over a sample of like, even if you see them over a sample of like 30, 40 hands, you can immediately be like, okay, this guy's a guy that I'm going to play hands with because he's going to donk it off to me very soon. So that's really useful. Like identifying the fish like right away like that. 
Yeah, and basically, Mike, what those numbers mean is if somebody says, you know, to 18, 16, the, the first number is how often they put money in the pot voluntarily. Mm-hmm. So the percentage of the time they play hands, essentially. Uh, and the second is how often, well, I guess it depends on your HUD, but it, it, the rate, it's a raising percentage. So it kind of shows you, like, when they play, they raise, or when they play, they limp, or that kind of okay. dynamic. Nice. You see, like, see yeah. a guy who has, like, I don't know, classic fish stats are, like, 35-7 or something. So they're, like, they only raise with very strong hands, like nines plus, ace, queen plus, or something, and then they uh, they limp a ton as well, like because so, their VPIP and the PFR have a big gap between them, which means they're obviously playing a bunch of hands that, they, that they're not raising pre. So they're either flatting pre a bunch or they're limping and limp calling or stuff like that, you know? And those guys always have low three-bet numbers as well. So those are the really I'm, passive players. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to learn how to throw my stats off here, so... <laughs> 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 I'm just going to start yeah. limping a ton, just, just early, just piss, <laughs> just limp. <laughs> that's like the most yeah that that's the that's where you can really take it to the next level it's something that me and uh mark galliano have talked about is just limping a ton in early stages just to throw people's heads off <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah when it's not worth but, anything yeah but i just i never have the i guess the energy to do it because you're kind of like i'm just not gonna limp jack six i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> and the, the thing is though that i think you'd have to do it a lot to influence their perception of you because most of the time, if a guy, if someone, someone perceives you as a reg, like if they know who they, if they know who you are, they're gonna pretty much, unless you play like super unusual, they're gonna pretty much assume you're playing a certain way anyway, just because that's how most regs play. And so, mm-hmm. if they do see you with a big gap between your VPIP and PFR, they, they might think that you're a bit unusual for limping a bit more often. But I don't necessarily know if that would affect how they perceive you playing post flop. So it may not even be worth it in the long run to, right. to lift your hands just, to, just for that purpose. Um, it's an interesting idea, and I think it's worth limping occasionally in, in certain spots to to like really throw people off when they don't expect it. But like uh, I don't know about the uh, I don't know about the HUD stats. I don't know if they're really like, especially in the early stages. I don't think people pay that much attention to them. I think people just right, play, yeah. they play pretty ABC in the early stages for the most part. Oh, yeah, I agree. probably true. Hey Mike, one thing I would love to talk to you about, and I don't know if this is. I don't know how uh, poker applicable this is, but I guess it, it kind of is. Anyway, um, you, you had mentioned having a couple beers at the end of a session. I know you had a couple beers at the final table. I love to have a couple beers at the end of a session online, and I actually blogged about this recently. Um, I find that it just helps kind of calm me down, but also maybe loosen me up a little bit and get a little more aggressive at the final table. Yep. You know, what's your philosophy on having it? Because I've had people say, you drink while you play. And I'm like, well, yeah, I drink when I don't play, too. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just curious about your philosophy. It's not something we've ever, I don't think, ever talked to a guest about. Oh, my God. I I don't, not as much, I don't as much anymore. When I was younger, you know, I could could hang for for hours and hours and hours. And uh, I went through some some stages in my life that that I'm better without. And, uh, but, yeah, I mean... Uh, a friend of mine uh, once said to me, he's like, you know, while you're getting drunk, your poker game is great. And once you get drunk, you're terrible. So like, <laughs> yeah. it's like kind of that extra edge, like that little bit of boldness that you need sometimes to make that extra mm-hmm. little bet or whatnot is uh, it can be a good thing. But then once once you're drunk, you're basically done. So. Yeah, you know that's uh, yeah, yeah, and getting I mean getting wasted while playing is not something I do, but I, you know a couple of beers is great. In fact, I remember when we were sitting there railing, and we I I was pounding the beers while watching you play, but I remember you had a couple, and you were like, okay, water, bring yeah, the water. Co- <laughs> yeah, once I got the heads up, I was like, coffee, you know, and like yeah, yeah. changing gears, you know, and 
Just, was... Yeah, I could tell you were definitely very aware of, like, now that you've said, like, while, while I'm getting drunk, I'm good, and when I'm drunk, I'm bad. Like, I could tell you're hyper aware of that because you literally knew exactly when to stop. Yeah, that's <laughs> practice. <laughs> uh, years of practice maybe the key is like a couple of beers and then you know once you uh once you get to a certain point the coffee like wakes you up it's like that combo of being relaxed but also being awake so like someone needs right. to some kind of beer coffee hybrid that gives you both of them just for poker play <laughs> nice <laughs> <laughs> just kind of coffee. nice I'm, I'm trademarking it right do now do it <laughs> well they have vodka red bull if you can put those two things together you can put beer and coffee together <laughs> nice. for sure um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, you know what you're up to now and what what your future plans are in terms of poker. What, what's uh, what's going on in the world of Balor? God, I've just been uh, I've really been just spending a lot of time with my family of late, and uh, you know up in Minnesota here we have some uh, some smaller MSP like MSPT or Twin Cities Poker Open or you know there's like a Chicago uh, little deal, Chicago Poker Open or whatnot. So I'll probably make it around to some of those and. Uh, but yeah, I'm not, basically, I'm going to, hopefully, Stars comes back, uh, Stars and Tilt come back sometime really soon, and uh, that's all that I'm really going to say about that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that would be, uh, that would be amazing. <laughs> what's, the, what's the situation with that these days? Because I'm really not up on, like, the, the U.S. news and, and knowing what's going on, so is that, is that a realistic possibility that Stars and Tilt will come back to the U.S. sometime in the next, you know, however long? I'm, ho- I'm hoping so. Um I, I thought that I thought I heard somewhere that Stars was just bought by some company, and that's you know everything's been kind of leading up to it makes sense that they're going to come back mm-hmm. with that Stars buying Tilt and paying all the U.S. people back and stuff. It wouldn't make sense for them to do that without planning mm-hmm. on coming back at some point. Mm-hmm. But I guess I don't know. Yeah, I think the it, it does, and I'm definitely not a, a legal scholar on this topic at all. But it, it does seem like most of the things that are happening. Uh, with stars seem to be leading towards a return to the United States. I guess the big question will be, does that mean a return to all of the United States or just the states who have regulated online poker, you know, Delaware, New Jersey, Nevada. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll tell you this, I'm going to be really pissed if poker stars comes to New Jersey and not North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I heard somebody at my table said that <clears throat> he lived in Florida and he was able to play on the sites like without having to do any other buy work or whatever. Like, he was able, just from Florida, to be able to play on whatever it was, hmm. either WSOP or Bovada or something like that. Yeah. Well, but I mean, interesting. Legit the, or... the amazing thing about the whole situation is that the poker economy, even despite the loss of the U.S., the poker economy still grown since Black Friday by so much. Like, we're still having, like, these 10 million uh, prize pool stars toys and stuff, and, and it you, it, like, blows your mind to think about how big the economy would get if the whole of the U.S. did come back. So, like, that possibility is pretty pretty insane as to what it would mean for, for online It's exciting. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. So, I think that... Yeah. I've, heard the tilt, I've heard the tilt schedule is, like, way down, though. That's what a, a friend of mine that moved out of the States was saying. That um, tilt it's, is... not, it's probably not... It's not fantastic, but it's, it's better than it was. They literally, in the last month or so, they've just added a bunch more stuff, which has really improved it. And... Both uh, Tilt and Stars, but mostly Tilt, have added these two-day tournaments with, like, flighted day ones, mm-hmm. uh, which are really, really good. Um, so you can, like, play day one every day during the week and then, you know, get a stack in day two uh, pretty easily. Um, and it's, yeah, they're, they're really good. Stars doesn't have quite so many of them yet, but Full Tilt has a bunch, and they're, they're definitely a good addition. You know, they're, like, 26s and 55s and stuff that have, you know, pretty solid prize pools. So, um 
there's some good mid-stakes stuff on full tilt now, but yeah, I think I think it's still lacking compared to what it used to. I, I only ever played like really low stakes on there when it was when it was around the first time around, but still, from what I hear from most of the most of the guys that uh, that I play with regularly, they're somewhat disappointed that a lot of the high stakes stuff that's on full tilt has pretty much dissipated and just kind of kind of not really you know it's not really stuck around. Right. That's that's kind of what I've heard. Yeah. It'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see too if it does come back because I think what you're going to have is all of a sudden you have all these people in America. You know, there's obviously some people who have continued to play and have kept their chops up, but there's a huge percentage of the poker playing population that hasn't played in three years, mm-hmm. at least online or at least with any heavy volume. So it really is a big influx of no offense to anybody who's listening who hasn't played in three years, but a big influx of fish. <laughs> you know. <laughs> nice. Man, so it, it, that, you got me excited again now for it. Like, I, man, that first like couple of months or whatever, when when the US guys all come back and they get used to the fact that everybody's doing all this different stuff now, it's uh, it's going to be pretty pretty good fun. Yeah, <laughs> nice. be, I I hope it's a problem we have to deal with very soon. Right. Yeah. I, think I, nice. I will say this: though, the the merge network that I played on for a while, they, it's the late night. Uh, 75 rebuy and stuff that a lot of the, the guys that played in that game were became pretty good over time and like have had a lot of success on uh, I guess live and it's, yeah it got better on there I know yeah it's interesting I think you know there's a lot of people especially people outside of the United States who are like oh you play on those withered US sites that must <laughs> be so great it's like you'd be surprised how good the competition has gotten mm-hmm. on there um, I mean there's some really really sick players I mean guys like Mark Dube and stuff who've gone on to really good live success. Right. Um, who, from what I can tell, honed their chops mostly on the U.S. sites over the last three or four years. Right. Speaking of that, we, uh, we mentioned that, that you're one of those guys who gives people fits, or at least gave me fits. Were there, were there players back in those days when you were grinding merge and stuff a lot who just completely destroyed you? Uh, yeah, actually, Mark, uh, Mark Dube definitely did have, have a bit of success against me as well as... Uh, I mean, I, I guess I say success, but I think it was kind of a you know a mutual like he'd take his beatings, I take my beatings, and same with uh, Jordan Christos, JC in blue. He definitely, he definitely, yeah. uh, he definitely gave me some gave me some problems sometimes, but and he he ended up winning, going on to win a big one as well. And it's, uh, yeah, and and he's another one of those guys who I think has a little bit of an unconventional style as well. You know, different, I think, in style from you, but mm-hmm. also different from the way most people play. I mean, I, you know, he's... I know he throws me off with his 4.5x raises pre-flop. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Uh, any, any more questions for Mike, Matt? Um, I guess I'm kind of curious, you know, future plans-wise, obviously you mentioned you got a lot of family stuff going on, uh, but, but being in the U.S., do you, do you have plans to kind of continue, you know, being a, a series regular in the summers or are you planning to like do any traveling to Europe or anything? Um, just uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider myself a series regular. I think, I, I think I, the past few years, I think I've played like maybe two world series events per year. And this year I played four. Mm. So I, I think uh, maybe next year, I maybe next year I will be a reg. I think we've talked about getting a house down there oh, with cool. the family. And uh, yeah, I've, I've actually have a couple questions for you guys. Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess the, the situations that I find the most difficult, and I have a few just kind of in my mind, is ace-jack under the gun with an MF5 <clears throat> to me is is an impossible situation, and I don't really have the answer. I think limping it is the best play, but I just – a lot of people I talk to say shove it, but I I just don't know. That's What do you guys think about that? Um, 
I don't know. This is a this is a new one. We don't we don't usually do too much strat on this uh, on this. Task. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I think we're okay. I think we're okay jumping into it. Um, yeah. I <laughs> see. It's funny for me because I'm I'm one of the guys that uses big blinds as his metric. So in terms of thinking about converting M into big blinds, that takes me a while. So M is what like is what's yeah, a, it would be like it's like twelve twelve and a half big blinds. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably just shipping that one on most tables. Like, I, there's not too many tables where I'd fold that one. Um, and I don't think I'd limp it either. Uh, I just, I, I guess limping isn't really a part of my game, especially not on those short stacks. I guess I, I came up through, uh, 180 man turbo sit and goes and, um, I sort of developed a game that was pretty much based around shove, shove fold poker at like that 12 big blind and less stack size. Right. So, uh, I mean, it's definitely an interesting idea to have. Uh, to have limping in those kinds of spots in your game, but I guess I haven't spent the time yet to figure out a way to incorporate it as a part of like a reasonably balanced overall strategy. Because if I was limping ace jack there, I don't really know what other kinds of hands I'd have in my limping range, and it's an interesting idea. Yeah, but I, I'm pretty sure I would just shove. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm shoving most of the time there too. Especially, I mean, I'm playing most of my volume on Bavada now, and for the most part, people are really tight on there. So I think I'm just shoving, knowing that it's going to get through a huge percentage of the time. I think for like 14, 14 and a half, it gets pretty tricky there. And 15, I might, I mean, depending on the table, I might start like raise deciding or just folding at some tables. But um, yeah, I think for 12 and a half, I'm just getting it in. Or or same thing with like 12 bags from the button with like ace eight. I feel like that's like a suicide. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, see, that, that's an interesting spot that I've talked a lot with uh, Danny M13 about. Um, and he talks about inducing hands like Ace-8 from the button with that small of a stack. Mm-hmm. Where, whereas I, I tend to just shove there all the time. And I think that might be a little bit of a difference in opponents because he's obviously playing higher stakes and he's playing on stars and tilt. Yeah. Um, to, me, to me in that spot, like, I, I'm shoving it the vast majority of the time, but it very much depends on who's in the blinds and whether you actually think that they would perceive that they would have fold equity on, on you on that stack size. Cause a bunch of the time, if you open on 12 bigs on the button, people are going to assume you're not folding. So for that, you know, in that instance, it's better to shove because you look a bit more balanced and you don't look like you have the nuts. Whereas right. like you, if you try to induce with ace eight on the button um, with 12 bigs against some guys, what's, what's going to happen is they fold a lot. And when they do shove, they don't actually have that, that arrange that you do that great against. So raise calling is going to be less profitable than shoving because you might actually get them to fold some hands that they, that do pretty decently against you if you shove. So mm. I'm pretty much like my default is definitely going to just be open shove there with 12 bigs. But um, you know, there's there's occasionally the old, the old table where I might do something different. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Th- those are basically that's the stack size for me where things. If I had you know. Of the weaknesses in my game, that's probably my biggest. And for Matt, it's probably not because you, like you said, you came up through the 180s and you, your push full game is really strong. Um, I don't know if it's really. It's not probably so. not as good as it used to be. It's uh, it's one of those things where like if you if you get out of a certain game for a while, everybody's ranges change. And I've played I've played some 180s this year, but I have certainly haven't played anywhere near as many as I did in like 2012. Um, and I'm a, I'm a much better player now than I was in 2012, but everybody's ranges in 180s are different because the regs are slightly better on average now. And, you know, people, people are incorporating new ideas like the occasional limp in certain spots and, and they're raised folding on different stack sizes and, and all sorts of stuff like that. So 
you know, I, I hold back into 180s now and, and I still feel like I'm very profitable, but I, I definitely come across a few spots where I'm like, whoa, I didn't expect you to turn up with this hand or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. But I think the idea of limping Ace Jack, another gun there, is a pretty good example of the kind of play that I would have seen you make and I would have been like, oh shit, I got. I have ace-10. What the hell's Battler doing under the gun limping with that stack? I don't know what to do now. Yeah, that would, that would confuse the hell out of me. Like, if I, if I already knew you were a really good player, and I saw you limp with 12 bigs under the gun, I'd be like, what the hell does he have? Like, what, what kind of possible range could he have in that spot? So, immediately, I'm like, man, I should do that. I should start limping under the gun. With 12 bigs. <laughs> well, yeah. no, I mean, well, that, that's the thing. Is like, I feel like the reason why I, I had this argument with a few guys is that I feel like, you know, there are a few people that are just going to be just trying to, to you know, and it, it's all about knowing your opponent. And, like, it, I feel like it looks so strong. Like, it looks like aces or kings or where I don't, I don't feel like somebody's just going to tilt off with, you know, sixes and just try to just aggro shove it on you unless they're strong, you know. Or, and, but that's I could be wrong, too. I guess that's why I'm asking. <laughs> I don't really know. Like I said, I think the curious thing for me there is, like, what other kinds of hands you would be limping there. Like, would you... Because ace-jack is, like, one of those hands that's pretty strong, but it's not, like, necessarily that kind of hand that's strong enough that you'd always... you want to trap at, like, every table because some tables are tight enough that you don't necessarily induce that much more because of how strong it looks by, by trapping. Right. So, like, are you limping your strong hands there, too, or are you limping, like, a bunch of hands that you're limp-folding? Are you limp, limping some, like, king-ten king, king suited kind of hands, or what kind of stuff? You want, in, actually, in that situation, I, I either limp, I limp a, in, with an M of five under the gun, I, I limp ace jack, I limp aces, I limp kings, I limp queens, mm-hmm. and then anything else, jacks, tens, down to maybe, I guess, eights, I probably ship in, and if I have ace king or ace queen, I just pile it as well. So, okay. so ace jack is like, that's interesting. So ace jack is. I'm thinking about folding it. Right, yes. Right. Ace jack is like the, the hand that you balance with in order to have some limb folds in there. Right, exactly. That's really interesting, because I think it, certainly, like, there's a bunch of guys, I mean, in 180s in particular, like, if you see, if you if you don't know who a player is and you see him limp under the gun, the default is to just assume they're going to be limp folding way too much, or just limping in general way too much, and so I think a lot of guys, a lot of guys are going to be seeing an under-the-gun limp there, and, and that's, like, if they don't know who you are already, they're going to assume you're pretty weak, and then they're going to, they're going to shove wider than the ace-jack, so it's really... I think it's going to end up being pretty close as to whether, like, folding ace-jack might be a little too tight there if, if someone shoves on you at certain tables, because there's, there's a bunch of guys who, if you limp in a, in a 180 or in, like, a turbo NPT, like, guys are just going to shove, like, the queen eight suited over you for, like, 14 bigs. And right. uh, it's, it's definitely, it's a weird one to get used to, and I think that's part of why I find it weird to think about having an under-the-gun limping range on that stack, because I just don't know what parts of it I'd be limp folding and what parts I'd be limp calling, because it's so thin, the line of how wide some guys shove, you know? Right. So that, that's, it's actually the, the one note that I, I'll always, that I always take, is if, if I limp, whether it's with a big hand or with a weak hand, and somebody, you know, if you limp and somebody ships in 15 bigs from anywhere, I almost always put the note, you know, will aggro shove a limp. Mm-hmm. And then if that person's at your table behind the act and you pick, wake up with a big hand, I'm always limping it. And just uh, hoping, yeah. like, the number of times that I, I've limped with aces in my life and just had somebody just move in just a ton of chips, it's just, like, I feel like it's happened a ton. Like, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's funny because limping aces is, like, the thing that you sort of, you, you do it when you start out in poker because you're, like, you're a fish and you think, like, oh, limping aces, this is, this is the trick to play. Like, I'm just going to, just going to call with my aces and I'm going to trap this guy. And 
and you do it and like you, you learn after a while it's like oh well wait maybe, maybe this is kind of obvious when i limp re-raise to like 10 big lines or whatever over this guy's raise <laughs> yeah but what if you start doing that with like you know three six suited or something that, if you're, if you're the, super deep like then all comes, of a sudden you start three betting it and, or four betting it and, yeah it's the thing it, come, it comes full circle to the point where like eventually you know it, it still works at higher levels because people people are just like well what the hell is he limping with you know and then you turn out to have aces and they they sort of kick themselves but in the, in the end, like you, you still get their tips. So it's kind of funny that it, it still works. Yeah. In, yeah. the, uh, in the main event, actually, I was at like 100K, uh, middle of the way on day three, and I, I limp in the battle of the blinds. The loosest player at my table was to my left, and I limp, limp bombed deuce five offsuit for like 35,000 of my 100K chips, and he moved in. And I was just like, fuck, like, there's no way that this guy woke up with a hand like that. Like, but I, I pissed a third of my stack with deuce five off in the main, like, just doing that exact same thing. Like, oh. In your mind, you're like, this is going to look so much like aces. Yeah, oh, yeah, there, there's no way. Like, I'd shown only big hands at the table, and, like, this guy was so loose. And it was like, and I talked to him, and I, I, he, I was like, there's no way you had, like, ace 10 there. Like, you had to have had bigger than that. And he was like, he's like, I had a huge hand. And, but... I mean, I just I feel like the the limp raise can look so strong. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's all about knowing how to adjust to it, really. And it's uh, yeah. yeah, it kind of makes me want to spend like a month just playing around with limping in like every spot and just seeing how people respond to it and seeing you know doing like a trial run of playing like a bunch of low stakes MPTs and seeing what happens. But I feel like that would lose me a bunch of money in the short term, so I really want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you'd, you'd be surprised. Try try, try limp raising. With something that's not that strong, Try, limp, limp under the gun, and when somebody raises, come over the top hard. If, especially if you guys are super deep, like fifty yeah. big lines deep, like mm-hmm. that. It's almost, they can almost call with nothing, like. Uh, or yeah, yeah. yeah, pretty good. It's a nice little, nice little tidbit. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually I'm I'm firing up a session uh, after I get this podcast edited and posted, so I'm going to try it tonight. <laughs> I Seriously, yeah. <laughs> Tell me yeah. what you think, but uh, nice. I'll, I'll I'll post in the notes on the podcast what uh, what the results are. <laughs> it's all night and see what happens. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Mike, for taking a little bit of time to chat with us. Uh, definitely appreciate it, and definitely somebody that I've been wanting to chat with for a while. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Yep, thanks again to Mike. Thank you, Matt, as always, for joining me here. And uh, thanks for everybody out there listening, and we will catch you guys next time on Midstakes Living. Bye-bye. Bye. If she has some trouble that I'm living hand to mouth Don't tell her I've been sleeping on your couch if she asks, just tell her that we open for the stones. It's her favorite band except for the Ramones. If she happens to suggest a love based on trust and respect, tell her I've been wasted since last week. If she wants to stop on by, tell her that I almost died. Tell her I ain't seeing people yet. But see if she'll send cigarettes If she has no cellar back the bloodshed in the streets The less she knows, the less she can repeat If she happens to bring up the pimp bricks and the throwing up Tell her it's just part of growing up 
St. Paul Tell her I'm not up to taking calls Ask her for some Adderall Now Holly won't say hi to me Cause I'm in love with my anxiety If she has to tell her that we're too far gone to deal She should know exactly how that feels If she wants to see her report, don't tell her about the kitchen doors Tell her we ain't even keeping score no more If she wants to help the cause, tell her we need sterile gauze Tell her she should look through all her medicine And see if she's got Clonopins Now Charlemagne don't seem the same He's skinny, scared, and off his game He's been hiding from those gentlemen With the same tattoos as Gideon